Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is TV Take, Variety's television podcast. I'm Daniel Holloway. Today we talk with Timothy Simons. He plays White House aide turned presidential candidate Jonah Ryan on Feet, which ended its Emmy-winning HBO run this past Sunday. Later, critics Daniel D'Addario and Caroline Framke will discuss Game of Thrones, which ends its Emmy-winning HBO run this coming Sunday. Then Variety's Daniel Terciano, Will Thorne, and Joe Otterson will discuss this week's upfronts. Stay tuned. Timothy Simons, thank you for doing this. No problem. Pleasure to be here. So we're recording on Monday. Sunday night was the series finale of Veep. Yes. There's a particular moment I wanted to ask you about before we oh, yeah. the rest of the series. Yeah. You're, um, uh, you're having an argument with uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Peter McNichols' character, mm-hmm. characters. And they're trying to convince you. They're berating you into agreeing to become vice president. And Julia slaps you in the head. Yeah. And it... In the show, the sound of it is very loud. I want to know if she, whether she actually slapped you in that scene. Oh, no, she absolutely did. She absolutely did. I think on every take, there was one time where she caught my glasses. She caught the glasses that I was wearing. No, it was, it, and I think the take that they used, I don't know if it was the glasses one, but like the ow that I give it was just, <laughs> like it is sort of, I leaned into the idea of it and maybe I played it up a little bit, but it was, it didn't take much to get there. Um <laughs> I really like I it, we didn't when we watched it all together last night everybody was laughing about the hit and so they didn't hear the line which I think might be the worst insult she's ever thrown my way which was um that she was giving me an opportunity to be remembered for something other the syndrome they name after me once they cut me open to figure out what the fuck you were <laughs> That's what she says in that moment. That might be the most devastating thing. Like, you know, but I'm actually like, I real like, I remember when we were filming that, I really like, I feel like there's like a, that's like, I'm pretty, I'm happy with how that scene da- turned out because I think that at the beginning of that is one of the only times that Jonah has ever comfortably taken power and hasn't lorded it over anybody. He's just said, it's the only time he's ever been calm about anything. They offer him vice president and he very calmly says, no, I don't want that. That's Which not... is terrifying coming yes. from Jonah. Yeah. And then <laughs> within 30 seconds, he gives it up, sells himself out and is like, fine, fuck it. I'll just, I'll be, but like, he, you know, he like right. reverts so quickly from like a, he's taking a principled and calm stand and he reverts so quickly from it. The uh, I didn't hear that line come out of Julia. I did hear you. I thought I heard you at one point in that in that scene say, "I'm not shaped like a racist, or like a rapist, like a rapist." Yeah. He does say that. I think <laughs> I think there's I can't remember what it is that Peter McNichol says, but at the same time that she's saying the stuff about the syndrome, he's saying something about like I'm a 
pile of failure shaped like a rapist. I think so. There's like a, you're a pile of something that's shaped like a rapist. And so it is like trying to defend yourself on two fronts. Uh, um, the, the, but the moment when he, and, and I swear to God, we won't just talk about the scene for the whole 15 minutes, whatever it is. Um, but the moment when Jonah is like, all right, all right, like stop hitting me. I'll be vice president. That to me is like, Aside from the fact that there's not enough vulgarity in it, um, like the most sort of like perfect veep line in certain ways, right? It's just this like you're dealing with like huge, huge things, but like on this very human level of like, oh, fuck it enough already. Yes, we'll, you know, we'll outlaw gay marriage. We'll give Tibet back to China. We'll like do like just like, fuck it. I need to go to the bathroom sort of thing. Yeah, there is like, I mean, it is I suppose, like if you look at it, it it's like it's a horrific Thing. And in like the epilogue, it's revealed she was successful in repealing gay marriage. And she did like th- what was formerly known as the nation of Tibet. Uh, it's horrific. It is absolutely horrific. But these people are so selfish and so self-involved that they absolutely do not care. Like Jonah has never cared about he didn't get into politics to help anybody. He didn't get into politics to make the country better. He only cared about power and proximity to power. I mean, he didn't like the presidency is more powerful and fine gets bullied into being vice president. It also speaks to the general, uh, like the general, uh, like the, the, like it speaks to the first thought of the show, which is that being vice president sucks. Right. Like, you know, it kind of loops back around on that idea too, of just like, that is a useless job. Like the point of the show in the first episode was that this is a useless job. And here we are. The dumbest person in the world is also like, I don't want that useless <laughs> job. If, um, if you went back to the beginning of the show and mm-hmm. when you're making that first episode, and someone had sort of like described for you what Jonah's arc would be and where he would land. And I realized the concept of Trump as we know him as yeah. an alien concept at the time. But, you yeah. know, aside from that, what would you have thought of of, uh, of that arc and, and of where the character ends up? So I think back then, uh, back then, if you had said it, because it came up, I think, somewhere in the second season. The idea that maybe somewhere down the line, because Armando mentioned it sort of offhand, like maybe somewhere down the line, Jonah could run for Congress. And even where he was in the second season, that made sense. Only that, uh, like idiots have been elected to Congress. That happens all Mm -hmm. the time. We have a long historical precedent (laughs) for that being a thing that can be realistic. And I know that this show show has always prided itself on trying to remain as realistic as we can while still also being a, 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 an entertainment television show. Like, like, uh, like great bits have been cast aside because the information wouldn't get delivered that way or whatever. Um, so I think the idea that he could have possibly, if you had told me then that he would have anything close to a successful presidential run, in that first or second season, I would have been like, that's a little bit too far. But but the realities changed. Like, mm-hmm. the realities of what you can... I mean, like, what counts as a gaffe has changed. Um, not, not just in the last 20 years. Or not just, like... But just since the show has started. Like, what counts as, like, a career-ending gaffe has completely changed. And so that was sort of, like... 
the 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 misdirect that I would tell people was like at the beginning of this thing, you'd have a hard time imagining he could even do it. And now you're going to have to convince me he's not the front runner just because of how awful he is. It's weird because, you know, this season, like even things like being married to his stepsister, Mm -hmm. like that doesn't that's not necessarily out of the question now. Like, I don't know if that's necessarily a disqualifier. No, nothing's a disqualifier anymore, it seems like. And it also seems like in the same way, like. Like, yeah, it wouldn't be a disqualifier. Also, like, I love that he never learns. Like, it's his, he always says half-sister when it's actually his stepsister. And then he finds out that it is his half-sister. And then he starts saying stepsister. (laughs) And then in this last episode, he refers to Andrew as as Selena Meyer's step-husband instead of his ex. He never puts it together. He's just so dumb. (laughs) But there is like, like, and even if somebody was running on a platform of, uh, of, of like an, an anti incest platform, and then and everybody rallied behind them, like, absolutely, you should not be able to marry your relatives, and then that candidate married their own relative. People like we are in this, we are in an environment where even that person's supporters would be like, well, yeah, no, but he can do that because this makes sense and it's fine and I still support them. Right. You know, like nothing has consequences anymore. Mm -hmm. You can say or do whatever at any time and then just say you didn't say it or you didn't do it. There are no consequences anymore. It's kind of crazy. That that thing that you're describing, I mean, that's that's a thing that really um, that happened in the middle of the show. Mm-hmm. You know, while while you guys were in the middle of your run, I guess, and and towards the end of your run, yeah. And then you had the the long gap between the last two seasons because of Julia's cancer. So, from you guys' perspective, and David just talked about this from like the writer's perspective, but from you guys' perspective, like, how did Trump and the phenomenon? I don't mean Trump directly necessarily, but the phenomenon that you're talking about, which is kind of linked to Trump. Uh, change the way that you approach the show or think about the show? I think it definitely became much more cynical and much darker than it would have been had that never happened. Um, and, uh, and so there's like, there's the thing we were just talking about, the idea that at one point there were political consequences for an, for an action and there are not political consequences for an action anymore. Those don't exist. So that's a bit, that's a big recalibration right there. And then, and then there's, um, Anna brought up a good point when we were on a panel the other day. And then I feel like this is a good, she summed it up. I feel like in a a really great way that mostly the show was looking inward, looking, they didn't, wasn't really worried about all the, it wasn't really worried about voters just Mm -hmm. in the same way that politics was kind of not worried about voters before it was, it was mostly just kind of nasal gazy about politicians and how self-absorbed they are. And, but one thing that I think that, that Dave, and the writers did that was smart was if you want to keep it away from just Trump, from just Trump shit, then you look at the people who would be dumb enough to elect somebody like that. And that sort of, so you would end up, you take it, you start aiming the camera outward a little bit. And those moments come up like in Jonah's rallies, like of which just came true. This idea, like we had a runner that whenever, and not all of them made it in for time reasons, but whenever he has a rally, whenever he mentions a woman, it doesn't even matter which woman, it could be Selena. I mentioned my wife at one point. 
Uh, I mentioned like a woman that I know in high school, somebody, somebody in the audience yells, kill her. And like that to me is a great comment. <laughs> like that's <laughs> what you do. Like that's how you pivot uh, toward, uh, it, but that's how you pivot to, to, to bring in the new reality that we live in. It's, there's one in the finale where, uh, yeah. He's, oh yeah. And I think that wife. one is like not, yeah, and well, he, not her, but sure. Not her, but sure. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I get what you're saying. Response. Yes. Kill women, not her. Right. And, and it, yeah. And again, while we were doing this, we were like, well, this is, this is blowing up the premise to prove a point. Uh, this is making the subtext very much the text. And of course, a week ago, uh, like, so making the subtext, the text in that, uh, during when he's talking about immigrants, somebody else killed them in the Jonah rally and at a Trump thing, six hours later, somebody, uh, Trump mentions immigrants and then somebody yells, shoot them. Like, it was supposed to be a blown up version that would never happen that proves an underlying point. And now it, we're not doing an eighth season, but if we, what were, what would we do? What would right. we do if we, if we were doing an eighth season? Right. Yeah. There's, there's obvious danger in that though. Right. And in what you guys did. And mm -hmm. as you said, making the subtext, you, the text, because um, you are blowing up the premise of the show and the show yeah. has been, uh, look, it's one of the most successful comedies in the history of television measured by, in many different ways, right? So when you take something like that and say, like, we're going to blow it up out of necessity, um, yeah, does that cause fear among the people making it? I mean, I, th I mean, I think so. If, if not for the fact that, uh, I mean, if not for the fact that I like the writers are incredible and Dave's incredible and Julia has a really fantastic eye for this sort of thing. I mean, I think maybe we would have been a little bit more worried. This season is definitely broader than past seasons, but it kind of just had to be. It kind, it just, it just had to be. But yeah, like for a lot of reasons, I would have preferred that we wouldn't have to comment on it. I would, and, and very clearly would give back every single joke that we got out of it if it meant we didn't actually have to deal with the reality of it. So, uh, so yes, it, it was worrying because, uh, because some of the stuff is really broad and really over the top and comparatively to the first season, like the stakes that we were dealing with in the first season, comparatively to the stakes that we're dealing with in the seventh, they are a lot larger and, and you could make an argument that they are less realistic but every single time, but every single time they come true. And, and it, there was that thing like, maybe it was that, maybe that fear was just us still stuck in 2013, like thinking that this is an anomaly, thinking that this all is an outlier when it kind of just isn't an outlier, you know? The world around the show changed and the show itself changed in response. Jonah, even though his path changed as a result of it, mm -hmm. is still very much the Jonah that we know yeah. in the first season, right? Um, when you have someone who is that, like, you're playing a character who is that stupid and has that much meanness inside them, like, do you like him? Do you find things to like about him? What are your feelings toward him? Yeah. Oh, I will, I'll, I'll, I'll throw an amendment on to the question you just asked as well as that one in that I, I think I would have been a lot more nervous about that transition of what we were going to deal with uh, uh, like in regards to like our current political 
environment. If all of a sudden we were given uh, things that were out of character just to comment, comment on Trump or his administration or whatever, but there were so many Trumpian things that existed in Selena and she got those like the sort of narcissism and win at all costs thing. And then like the sort of the blind rage and idiocy, idiocy and racism, Jonah got those, but they were all there to begin with. Um, but so to answer, but to answer the question you just asked, like, I think I, that just like goes back to like initial, like sort of like initial acting training. I'm just not making character judgments of, you know, don't come to be like, Oh, well, this person's a dumb idiot. So they have to do this, like finding a true and grounded reason and 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 logic for the behavior that they have so that it feels grounded and it feels emotionally true like that it comes from somewhere that thing of like every ever like you know it's like the reason that killmonger and black panther work so well as a villain because everything that he does he believes he's making the right choice and and so yeah like that's just a thing that you have to you just kind of have to do like i never think like like I'll say outwardly Jonah's an idiot, but like when I'm actually dealing with a scene in which he has to go do something dumb, I'm trying to find the reason that he thinks it's the right thing to do. Or like, why do you, why does he think that this tactic is going to be the thing that gets him what he wants? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So yeah, try not to keep, make character judgments while you're doing it. But from the outside, if we're going to talk about him, he's an absolute, he's just a <laughs> dummy. But while, yeah, while we're doing it, that looking for like real grounded emotional things to make it, to make it work. Right. There's a, another great uh, moment in the finale when uh, Selena says that she's going to make Jonah reap and uh-huh. Amy like drops to her knees and yeah. starts begging her not to, um, where it's like, they've done all these things over the years that are just like completely morally bankrupt. But this is the line that like she cannot cross. And it feels like such an earned moment for the show to be like, no, like Jonah being, you know, near the white that close to the White House is just unacceptable. Yeah. For any of the even for these morally bankrupt characters. You know, and I think like there are like Amy, it's funny, like so we um I was talking to Matt about this because I went back and I watched the show like before we started filming the season, I went back and watched the show from the beginning, like trying to find Maybe there was maybe there was a callback or maybe there was something that I could connect the last episode to the, to the first episode, even if it's just for me. And one thing that we were talking about, how it was like in the beginning, like, yes, they were cynical and, and yes, they were dealing with problems, but they did believe in her. Like her staff believed in her as a candidate. They were trying to do the best job they could for that person who they thought would make the world a better place if she was in power. And as the show went on, more and more, it just became about this is what we do. It doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't matter anymore if I agree with her. It's just this is the this is the horse that I attached the cart to. And here I am. I can't start over. So we just have to keep moving forward. And so like there is the cynicism of they don't even care anymore. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Amy was the last one to shake off that that thing like she so, and so maybe maybe it's like the like you know, like I was like a, I like I was a straight edge in high school and all the way into my my first year of college. But when I shook that off, like I went way too hard, <laughs> you know. Right. It's like oh acid, yes. <laughs> so like so maybe it is that like so she just turns she turns so at hard and leans so hard on Jonah and like I don't care like so. 
but she, but so when, when it does feel earned in that way that like she it wasn't that far removed from when she had hope right so it wasn't so far in the rear view like she could remember it right even yeah. at the beginning of this season she's still yeah. kind of her relationship to Selena and what she and trying to steer her in certain ways is still very much the same as it was in the first season. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like, she also was able to see Selena. she was maybe the only one that was able to really see Selena as she was like when she had does that whole speech at the end of, uh, maybe the end of season three or season four when she, you're, where she's like, uh, you're, you are going to be like the last woman president oh, because yeah. we tried that once and she <laughs> fucking sucked. Like there is that bit. Like Amy's also the only one that's ever really seen Selena for what she truly is. So yeah. Yeah. Like that is, I do like that. Like even with all these terrible people who have sold out completely, like even Kent who has no emotions and is only about numbers is like, that is an unacceptable outcome. That's not okay. Even if the numbers say it's the right thing, he's like, he actually even says, like, fuck the numbers. Like, which is that character giving, like, betraying his core belief, right? Because it's such a strong thing. The Jonah can't be. The Jonah can't. Like, that is, that is an unacceptable (laughs) outcome of what what could happen. Um, the, uh, you said when we were walking over here that, uh, that you think this episode might be the best one that you guys did. Yeah. I think that if, like if we're looking back, like if I was saying, like if somebody wants to make an argument for testimony, I think I would definitely, I would definitely listen to that argument. I also, but I think that there was something really, and I don't want this to sound like, oh man, we did such a great job. Like that's not what I'm, I mean, like, but when I, so much of the show changes that I don't see. Mm-hmm. And so any scenes that I'm not in, I get to watch with fresh eyes. And I'm a fan of the people in this show. Like I'm a fan of Julia's and I'm a fan of Matt's. So, so much of it is new by the time it airs that I'm watching it just like anybody else. And, and so it's nice for me as somebody who likes the show that it had a little bit of extra time to sink into moments a, a few times like the the scene in the the scene in the in the hospital with uh with Ben and Selena stands out for me uh just because I think Kevin Dunn is such a such an unbelievably good actor and you could lift I mean like that scene that scene like a lot of other scenes that he does you could lift it out of our show and put it in a drama and his performance still is perfect for for either one and that's one of those that works that same way like just uh, like a broken dude on his 12th heart attack who's telling somebody like you know what to do and like her sort of begging like you can't do this you're my hatchet man like that was really affecting to me and the fact that they were able to sink into that they had a little extra time to sink into it um just felt good as a viewer as somebody that likes that show um yeah it's a thing that the show has been successful in doing a little bit more in the last few seasons is sort of like slowing down for a minute at a time. And not that Selena, it's almost impossible for her to become sympathetic at this point, but like you're definitely there with those characters when that's happening. And when Ben makes the joke about like not telling, uh, not telling his wife and kids because he needs the rest and her being like, I had never seen them anyway. I've never seen them, never met them. It's a, it's a great joke, but it also feels like sort of naturalistic in that moment, right? Like yeah. it's like these are just two people who are, are having, you could kind of imagine that in a drama, even with the joke. Yeah. Like that the, these people are like, 
those two characters especially, he's not going to be upset that you know, like. I never asked you to meet my family. I don't want you to meet my family. I don't want to know my family. Like these are people that are very clear eyed about who they are. And it's nice to see them doing that. Like we, there's the joke earlier that you even know that Ben would get you when she's like, Ben, you can't die. I don't know what the floor whips names are. (laughs) Like that's such a great, but of course Ben would be like, yeah, of course I know I can't die. Of course you don't know the floor whips names. Like I, I don't know. I just, and also, like, those moments of stillness work really well for jokes, too. Like, one of my favorite my favorite moments of this season was when Selena is trying to get Marjorie to incriminate herself on, like, being recorded. And it's, like, one of the few moments that they allow for silence. And it's, of course, like, Clea Duval has such an unbelievable deadpan. She deadpans for a solid five seconds and is like, <laughs> are you recording this conversation? Like, it's, she doesn't betray anything but she, all the gears are turning and she figures out this conversation is being recorded. It's so great when they take those moments. You got to uh, go long for the finale. You guys were yeah. like 45, 48 minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There. Um, what was uh, mechanically, like what was different about, about doing that? And what, how, what do you think it allowed for the finale to do? I... Well, mechanically, nothing was different because our episodes are always incredibly long and the scripts are always incredibly long, but they just get cut down. So like that testimony episode, which I think the first assembly of that, the script was 92 pages long. The first assembly was, I believe, 88 minutes and it got cut down to 30. Um, uh, So that mechanically, it all works exactly the same as any other episode. The only, I think there was just something nice while we were shooting it about being like, if there's an important moment that needs to be in there, we're not going to have to get rid of it or shorten it or do anything. Like we're going to have the time that we need to do this one exactly right. And so that felt cool. Uh, Like we have kind of lost any ego about moments going by the wayside. Um, like long ago, just because they've happened so often, but it was nice to know, like, if if it's really important, it's going to make it in here, and it doesn't matter how long it's going to be. Uh, there was there was one moment that I missed. I, I mean, like, so like it's just a joke. It doesn't move the plot forward at all. It's just a great character joke that Julia put in right before they're going to offer me vice president, and it makes sense. Like, you get into a scene. You come into a scene as late as you can and you leave as early as you can. I know that's a thing. But there's this moment at the at the top of that scene where she walks in and I'm I'm sitting and Beth, my wife, is standing next to me. And she's met Beth before, but looks at her, hands her an empty glass of water and says, oh, and we need some more towels in the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> and just the cluelessness of like, that's my wife. She's definitely met her before, but just views anybody that she doesn't really recognize as the help yeah. is such a great character joke that I mean like I miss stuff like that but I know why it isn't in there because it just uh, doesn't move it forward right um but as far as like so yeah mechanically it all felt the same um yeah mechanically it all felt the same except it was the last episode that we were filming so uh, we were just all crying mechanically it was the same but everybody was crying what um as I think we sort of said before, the the show is, I mean, it has a, it carved out a unique place for itself in TV history, right? I mean, all the Emmys that it won and drawing the amount of attention that it did for being on, you know, a sort of a platform that isn't broadcast TV, that mm-hmm. not everyone has has HBO. Um, 
when you look at the length of the show's run, it very much feels like it was the right show at the right moment. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. What what do you think that it did particularly well that maybe just hadn't been done before or hadn't been done as well before? Well, we were in, I mean, like when you're talking about like the right show for the right moment, we were in a particularly hopeful period of time. Um, yeah, like, uh, we came out in 2011, Obama was elected in 08. So we had like, you know, been into the Obama administration for a couple years and everything's very sincere and hopeful and forward thinking. And I feel like there is a sa- there's a safety, there was a safety in that it, it, to, to show political cynicism, um, so I think that was, um, so that was, I think that would like, so that's like the right time, the right, that so the timing was right for that. Um, and I think as far as I, so I think one of the things that our show did that maybe you hadn't seen before is that whenever you're dealing with, and I feel like the West Wing is an incredible show and I love it, but I think to that point, whenever you were dealing with American politics, there was always going to be a reverence for, for, there was always going to be a reverence for it at any level. It was just going to be like, you know, these are good people. They might not be, might they might make mistakes, but they are good people doing the right things for the, for the American citizens. And, and like that reverence is very much there in, in West Wing. And this was a show that had absolutely no reverence for any of it like it attached no emotion to their to their narcissism or their want to uh, to their for their ambitions it was just as cynical as as it could have possibly been and because it was a show about not only american politics but about global politics once she became president you get to global politics in there it could be cynical about every single thing that normally you could never be cynical about. And I feel like that was something that did separate us because even if you were going to be cynical on the West wing about something, somebody had to come around and, and be like, you know what? No, we're going to, we're going to fight through and for the better. Mm-hmm. And we never, <laughs> no one we, fights through for the better. Nobody fights either. through for the better of anybody else. <laughs> they might fight through for the better of themselves, right? But not for the, not for the American citizens, You're, not for the electorate. <laughs> You're in uh, you're in production on your new series now. I'm on I'm in production on a uh, eight episode limited series that's going to be on Hulu. Mm-hmm. So I I sold a pitch to HBO that I'm writing and hopefully becomes a show like it's still sort of early stages of development um, that I'm hoping kind of becomes the next job. But uh, but I'm working on a a different show right now. Is it when you're on something for the length of time that you're on? veep it's this sort of unique problem of not problem but it's not all actors encounter a successful run on television the way that you guys did yeah um and you know we were talking about game of thrones earlier the cast of game of thrones is experiencing sort of the same thing now it's like you move into the stage of your career where you no longer have the thing that you have had yeah you know at the center of your career for so long um what how does it feel to be moving forward with the show? Like you were there with the cast and the writers last night watching the last episode, like it's done. Yeah. So how is that? It kind of sucks. 
I mean, I, that's like, it's a very reductive, uh, reductive way of putting that. It kind of sucks. Like I, I loved, I loved every single second of working with those, with those guys. Like that was an incredible group of people. Um, but also like, it can't go on forever. Like a best case scenario, best case scenario. It goes on for two, three more years. We're still dealing with this moment. It's not like I can, you know, we're not going to, it's not like a, you know, it's not like a steel worker's job where you just like, you work at the mill until you re- reach retirement age. Like this just doesn't happen. So there was, all, you always kind of knew you were always, we were always prepped for the fact that it would end. Um, and then we were going to have to deal with that. I think everybody is like, everybody's excited about what comes next. I mean, like the thing that I'm working on now is totally very different. And I think that's great. I mean, yeah, I, I, like I'm, it's, it's a little bit daunting. Like there has been, there's been a lot of consistency. Like I have a family, there's been consistency for the family. Like that's been great. Um, I'm, this might be a different answer if it's 20 years ago and the show had had this kind of success 20 years ago. And I, but I'm not as worried about getting like, there's just too much opportunity out there right now. There's too many. There are how many scripted shows are there? 500 and like two years ago, there was 410. This year, it's probably in the 500s or 600s. Like there's too much stuff out there, you know, like I'm not worried about finding another job. I am worried about finding another job with an ensemble that gets along this well. You know, we are really lucky with that. I don't want there to be like poisonous relationships in future jobs. Um, but I've always I've I've been lucky with that generally. And so I'm not even super worried about that. I don't know. I have a little bit more, I don't know, a little bit more confidence now. And if there is somebody being poisonous, I might be able to be like, fucking quit it. Stop it. You know, I don't know. I, it's uh, it's a little daunting. I'll miss everybody. I like I'll miss going back to work in the fall with everybody. Um, but we'll keep in touch and, you know, just on to the next things. Yeah. Tim, thank you very much. Thanks, man. This is fun. The series finale of Game of Thrones premieres May 19th on HBO. Caroline Framke and Daniel D'Addario talked about the groundbreaking drama. All right. So Sunday night nears, which uh, represents the marked end of an era. The final episode of Game of Thrones is airing Sunday, and this season has been divisive among fans and critics alike. I will say, uh, Caroline, you and I have had our disagreements over the course of the season's run. Um, I overall have been pretty bullish on the season, and I think you a bit less so. I'm curious if we could talk out what we think of the season before we go a little bit broader and maybe come to some sort of agreement and concord. I'm curious... Um, what are some looking for some optimism? What are some <laughs> what are some things that we both liked about it before we talk about also things that we wish had been done a little better? What what did you what would you pull out and say you appreciated about season eight? Yeah, I think I really have been into the overall ambition. Like for as much as I think some of the storytelling got rushed, and we'll talk about that more later just about every episode has really gone for some big set pieces and some really, as you said, divisive choices that I think a less gutsy show would have shied away from. I think it's not, 
it's been pretty willing to show some of its mo- most beloved characters in really unflattering lights. And of course, some of that is down to whatever ending George R. R. Martin told the creators about forever ago. Um, I think, as we saw in the penultimate episode, The Bells, with Daenerys's big turn, it seems like this series was always building to Daenerys Targaryen being the Mad Queen. For better or for worse, whatever you think of it, this is where the story was going. And I think that's a really interesting story to tell about. And as it's, it kind of all goes back to something Cersei said forever ago in the first season. Power is power and the way that these people have been responding to it and circulating around it and being becoming really petty, small versions of themselves has been really fascinating to watch unfold. Whether or not I think they're acting totally in character is another thing. But I think that having a show operate on such a huge scale in a way that TV had never seen before, ever, and then to end it in a way that just says, none of this really means anything. Everything old is new again. Everyone's going to die eventually. I think that is a pretty remarkable thing. Right. There's nothing new under the sun in Westeros, which is something I like about it, too, in that everyone ultimately is in their own way an operator and someone who is motivated by less than virtuous things, which does not make them all bad people. It just means that what have been complications over the course of the series have kind of developed into uh, things that yield chaotic results. And that's not just Daenerys. That's uh, pretty much every character has kind of made one big final zag in the, in, in the eighth season as things have come to a head. And I appreciate that ambition as well. I like you. I wish that the pacing were a little bit less tight. I think that that's been a consistent problem since they left behind the books that have been published by Martin and they used to have those as a roadmap and now they don't. I also think that, frankly, six episodes was likely all that they were able to get the budget for or all that they were able to get people to commit for after eight years. Or there was some, I think, very likely reason external to just the story that this couldn't go 10 episodes. And I think that's too bad. I think that there could there were a few story beats that could have been added. But overall, I also think like there have been within the rush, within the melee towards the end, there have been pulled out moments that really shine. I think that the episode, uh, I think it's the second episode of the season where they are waiting at Winterfell for what seems at that moment to be very likely death uh, is such a beautifully written episode, so complex. It truly stands among the uh, series' best. And that's Brian Cogman, who's been on the show since the beginning. He wrote that one, and I think he really crushed it in a way that he has come to be known for, for all the little intricate character relationships. And that episode was such a beautiful payoff for so many of them. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because also he doesn't, tend to in the wider world get credit as a writer because i think the perception is that benioff and weiss uh the creators of the show david benioff and db weiss write the whole thing which gets them a lot of credit but also i think in the end will get them a lot of vitriol poured their way uh when this all ends i also do think the performances have been characteristically strong Mm -hmm. i think that across the board the ensemble has done beautifully and maybe this could be a pivot point to broadening it out because I do think that before we went on on Mike, 
we were talking about these upcoming Emmys and both to avoid Thrones as final season likely and for a panoply of other reasons. I mean, the way has really been cleared for Thrones, which is already the most Emmy winning show of all time. Uh, I think only it and one other show, This Is Us, are eligible to be uh, from last year's Best Drama nominees to return this year. Everything else either left the air or took the year off. Uh, the upcoming Big Little Lies is did not will not compete against it because it was pushed until June. Um, so we are looking at a landscape whereby it's very likely that Thrones will pick up a great deal of Emmy hardware and then we'll look around the TV landscape and say something is missing. A big consensus show that's loved by awards voters, by the public, to a degree by critics at times, uh, and a consensus show. And I, I just feel like it's interesting to fathom a world in which that one big hit isn't there. Yeah, and the in the TV world that Game of Thrones is leaving behind is not the one it entered into in 2011. Um, I mean, streaming was nowhere near what it is now, just as a whole. Um, it's just TV has exploded in such a way since the beginning of Game of Thrones that, you know, there's been a lot of talk about whether or not we're ever going to have another one true water color, cooler, water cooler show, not watercolor show, even though some of it looked very beautiful. Yeah, I mean, I want Bob Ross back, but. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and I'm not sure if we ever will. Um, I'm not convinced we will, but you never know. But I do think that whatever sort of the next big zeitgeisty show is, it will not look like Game of Thrones. Um, and that's something that I think some networks are betting against. Like we talked a little bit in the our preview for this season about Amazon, for instance, snatching up the rights to Lord the Lord of the Rings franchise for an obscene amount of money to make, you know, five or so series. The, the one that's coming up next is a prequel. Um, and maybe it will be popular, but I do think that if someone, some team wants to, some network wants to make another huge hit like this happen, it has to look different because people, like now they always will be compared against Game of Thrones, so you have to find something new to do. Well, and I think that accounts for Game of Thrones' success. Obviously, as you say, like Game of Thrones launches in 2011, Netflix doesn't really start its original programming until 2013. Like... It was a different world, but also Game of Thrones filled a niche. And to a degree, I think it felt so refreshing and felt so unusual. And anything that follows too directly in its footsteps will feel very usual. I think that we will never know the numbers on this, but the only show that's come out during its run that to me really kind of not rivaled it, but kind of was in the conversation in the same way was Stranger Things on Netflix, which similarly was doing something that some would say is very derivative. I also kind of like Stranger Things, but <laughs> uh, felt unlike other shows on the air at that time. And for that reason, it kind of instantly connected with the sizable and vocal fan base that it did and got a lot of media coverage. I sort of feel like a lot of shows now in a post-Game of Thrones universe, aren't really trying for that. I think Netflix got really lucky with Stranger Things, but I also don't know that they're trying for water cooler hits in the same way. I think they're very happy with, for instance, shows that they can say 
are widely viewed, like for instance, Sex Education, a show that they proudly touted that it has 40 million viewers. The fact that it is truly not a water cooler show and is not really widely covered in the media and that a lot of people took these reported numbers as a big surprise is immaterial to them. Um, and so I kind of wonder if that's the future, that the, there are shows that have very passionate niches and the stars aren't on covers of magazines and they there is not national speculation about how they'll end, you know? Yeah, and I think one thing we were talking about again before we got on mic is that maybe the strongest contender for launching something like this is the upcoming Disney Plus streaming service, which has the rights to an un- an incredible amount of properties, most notably the Star Wars universe, and they are launching the streaming service with a few series, one of which is an original Star Wars series. And I think that there, I mean, there obviously is a market for it. And I think there is a way to do it in a way where you don't have to be so caught up in all the granular little Star Wars mythologies to be invested in the world at large. And you can tell a story about, you know, the the kids from Return of um, the Last Jedi who saw oh, yeah. the, the ships going away, and yeah. then, but they're left behind. Like, you can tell a story about any one of those people. You could tell a story about the casino. Like, I don't know. But I think that that would be a good way to maybe get one of these hits in. But we obviously don't know everything about Disney Plus yet. I will say that my personal wish list for whatever these new series are, or I hope some of the lessons we can take from maybe both what Game of Thrones did really well and what and where I think it fell short. From what it did really well, I hope more shows take cues from and more networks give support for the kind of technical brilliance that I think was really on display in just about every episode. This ep- the series for whatever you thought of the Battle of Winterfell and its incredible darkness. Again, a point that Dan and I differ on. Dan, I, the I, darkness was good, actually. Point. It's like, I it's know. actually okay. <laughs> it was, it's real. They were in the... They, they, were they in didn't the have Klieg lights to light it up. No, they just they had didn't. torches. I know. Well, I didn't have a Klieg light either. I couldn't see a damn thing. But the point I is... I figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> the point is, there are so much big, ambitious things and... TV's never, like, before Game of Thrones, this kind of budget, this kind of weight, this kind of attention to technical detail hadn't quite been mastered in this way. Um, I hope that that ambition stays. I think it is really exciting to see TV executed in such a way. You know, I thought that everything in the Bells episode, for however I thought the storytelling didn't quite hold together, looked incredible. So I hope we see more of that. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think it's not just the money, it's the level of the people they had on hand. All the department heads, I think, were really top of their game. And I, while I don't want to at all delve in the time we have left into a movies versus TV debate, I do think that they approached it with a level of obsessive focus that I think is more commonly associated with movies. And I was glad to see the world of TV get that kind of shine. I feel as though it's interesting because we're just to kind of leave on a note of looking forward to the future of the business. HBO, you know, is saying goodbye to this and very soon after is pivoting into what's likely the final season of Big Little Lies so that at least people won't churn off and unsubscribe instantly. But I do kind of 
think this comes at an inopportune moment for them saying goodbye to the uh to this massive hit because for instance when the sopranos left the air you know forget that streaming wasn't where it is now streaming basically didn't exist uh and it was just a less competitive environment and they hadn't just uh gotten a new owner that's hungry for more content as they have now and so i feel like the level of patience that existed after uh the Sopranos left the air where there were several years of them in the wilderness with the party line, just kind of being like, they will figure it out. Don't worry. It's fine. You know, it's interesting to watch them experiment. That doesn't really exist anymore. And I'm hopeful that they'll find something. I think that if I had to guess a lot of people in a lot of rooms are thinking along the lines you did, Caroline, that it has to be something different and hoping that Watchmen is that something different. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. I mean, I'm looking forward to Watchmen, which, of course, comes from Damon Lindelof and should be really interesting, but I don't think it's going to be on the same scale. They're, they're also, don't forget, they are launching a Game of Thrones prequel series, uh, at least a couple. Those are still in the works. I am interested to see what those look like, not least because I do believe... The one that's closest to being developed and everything is being showrun by a woman and something that Game of Thrones always lacked overall. Yes. Were more women writers, they, I think, only really had – they never really had many perspectives from people of color in general. And no. I think, like, I would be fascinated to see what happens in the Game of Thrones universe with those perspectives in the writer's room. I think it's going to look extremely different. And I do think that is interesting. But – Will it replace what Game of Thrones was? I don't think so. No, I don't think so either. I think that it's very rare for a spinoff to even come close to the show as a matter of principle. And the mere fact that um, Thrones is the most successful show of this era makes unflattering comparisons seem inevitable. But we'll just have to wait and see. And until then, there's always more TV where that came from. This week, advertisers and programmers gathered in New York for the final week of Upfronts. We talked with Daniel Terciano, Will Thorne, and Joe Watterson about one of the biggest weeks on the TV calendar. So the biggest last week of Upfronts happened in New York. We're at the tail end of it now. What were some of the things that you guys saw that you were interested in or thought looked good or were just fun? Well, I'll start. From a content perspective, um, Michelle King and Robert King have Evil, which is coming to CBS this fall. It's a a new drama that kind of looks at whether demonic possession is real or not. Um, And they've been on CBS All Access for the past few years with The Good Fight. This is their return to broadcast television. And they return with something that doesn't necessarily feel like a traditional broadcast show, which to me is always a highlight. I want something that's a little bit meatier. I want something that's a little bit more serialized. So that was um, one of the shows that I think looked the strongest. It also, you know, boasts a cast that includes Mike Coulter and, and Michael Emerson, and and they're pretty heavyweight TV actors. I think a lot of us are used to sort of poking fun at what we see of the new broadcast shows. Um, to be fair to the creators, I mean, a pitch to advertisers with the trailer and not much else to go on is not like the best way to present a series, right? Um, but that said, I mean, were there was there anything else content-wise, uh, Will, that stuck out to you that you saw? For me, the one that stuck out the most was probably Stumptown, the uh, the Kobe Smulders project to ABC. Um, that one, it, it felt it was gritty. It had a real interest to it. 
um, kind of like evil. It, it felt like it was saying something different mm-hmm. at the network. It felt like it was doing something that the network doesn't typically do. Um, Kobe Smulders, I think, is a really likable on-screen personality. Um, mm-hmm. She has, you know, some some how I met your how, how I met your mother street cred and some you know some uh, Avengers street cred. So I feel like she that show could be a success for them. I think. Mm-hmm. And then um, this wasn't a, a broadcast show, but um, I was very impressed by what I saw from uh, Snowpiercer. It was originally a TNT series. They're now moving it to TBS. They showed the first footage from that today. And that, given the the troubled history that show has had, that actually looked very impressive. And um, also, just interestingly, that show was previously set up with a series order at TNT. It's now being moved to TBS, which has been a comedy brand for the last several years. They've been very clear about making that, you know, the cutting edge of cable comedy for the last several years. So now they're kind of starting to blur that line in the, you know, the, in the now kind of Warner media world. So I thought that was very interesting. So Joe, I'm going to use your, you're talking about Snowpiercer to segue into talking about the structure of some of these presentations, right? So you talked about the, the blurring of the lines between uh, TNT and TBS and what we saw in what was traditionally the spot for the Turner upfront Turner being a company that no longer exists anymore. We saw a big, massive Warner Media up front that encompassed those two brands and, and other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, how was this different from what we have seen in the past from that particular presentation, but also other presentations like Disney, where you've got a lot of brands thrown into one big show? Um, I think it made it a little harder to process. I mean, just because you have so many brands competing for the same time, it made it a little harder to differentiate something sometimes. So it's like... Again, like we were saying, like, you know, it's, is it, is it TNT? Is it TBS? Like, what exactly are we looking at here? Um, and then, of course, you had, you know, Conan O'Brien came out and had, you know, did kind of his, you know, shtick and he was very funny and it was kind of roasting, you know, Warner Media and the audience and such. And that's always really good. But yeah, it just, it just felt, um, a bit overwhelming and a bit, uh, clunky, uh, if I'm being honest. So in the opposite side of the spectrum from clunky, um, these things are essentially sales pitches, right? And a big part of doing a sales pitch is entertaining the crowd, bringing out some comics like Conan, as you said. Danielle, I imagine you were not in the past a um, a religious viewer or attendee of ESPN's upfront presentation. <laughs> so true. this so this was your this first was a, time getting to watch Kenny Maine, right? It wasn't my I mean I watched it. It just right. in the past because I'm a professionalist business and I need to know what's <laughs> happening. But I mean it it was very interesting for me personally to see these things lumped together as clunky as some of them felt, they actually were shorter in time because ESPN used to have its own presentation which could be 90 minutes. Now sharing with with ABC Network and FX and the, the Disney family, it was, I think, two hours for all of these pieces together. So it actually should have felt like it went faster. And I will say that Kenny Mayne was a highlight for me personally because he's very dry and he was just poking a lot of fun at his own company and his own uh, relationship to the advertisers and, and the fact that the advertisers even want to buy space on broadcast TV, which is a dying business to paraphrase him. Plus he brought out a puppy, which is always nice because Nat Geo is now all a part of that family. And it was a lot, there was a lot to process in that presentation. Um, I felt like at least there was a little moment of lightness and brevity with him. I was waiting to see if you had mentioned the puppy. Of course I'm going to mention the puppy. (laughs) Um, So that's some of what worked and, and, and what didn't about having these big, um, these big multi-brand encompassing presentations. 
what didn't land? I know Joe was expressing before we started taping a, a sort of general lack of enthusiasm for what he saw. Yes, I was. So, like, what didn't? <laughs> so, like, what didn't work for you? Like, what? Like, without being brutal, I guess. Without being brutal, um, it, it's just like I was saying earlier. It's just that it just seemed like a lot of things got lost in the shuffle. There was some stuff I was excited to see, and just given the fact that you know, like Danielle was saying, they had to you know compress what would have gotten you know kind of its own presentation in years past. Now they had to get it down to you know five, ten minutes or whatever in order to fit into this much you know now that they're under this much bigger corporate umbrella. Everybody has to share at the same time. Um, so there are some things I would have liked to have seen more of that I didn't really get to this year. In particular, I was very excited about the announcement for All Elite Wrestling at TNT, but I know I'm the only one who's excited about that in this room. But uh, millions I'm excited of for you. Yeah, millions of wrestling fans around the world are excited, but that's another story. Hundreds of wrestling fans. <laughs> Will, is there anything that stuck out for you in terms of uh, just, I don't know, ridiculousness? In terms of ridiculousness. Yeah, sure. Um, well, let me think. I would say in terms of the in terms of the battle of the late night hosts, I mean, I think they were all dragged out at this point. Jimmy Fallon made the first appearance, I think, uh, the mm-hmm. NBC, um, at the NBC upfront for quite some time. I, I think it was his first for five years or something like that. Uh, and uh, the, he parodied the Apple, the Apple ad, uh, the drone Apple ad. Uh, but so, but in ter- in terms of how they fared, I thought Kimmel probably came out the most savage. I think he certainly threw the most jibes at the other networks. I think some of the others didn't, you know, some of that they were all roasted their own networks or their own, their own massive media conglomerations that they're now a part, now a part of. But I thought Kimmel was through the most sort of cross, cross company jibes. Um, James Corden was there for about half a second. <laughs> Your countryman. My yeah. Countryman. And Colbert was there, but Colbert did a lot of political stuff, which he is did. very on brand for him. But, mm-hmm. you know, it was just like, it wasn't really in key. You know, he did some, he did like some CBS jokes, I think, right? He did, he did, he did, he did, he did a move yeah. as joke. Yeah. He did a move yeah. as joke. Yeah. But for the, yeah, I, think, I agree with Will. I think Kimmel um, was the best in the sense that he just, you know, really held nothing back. It was just kind of a scorched earth approach to the yeah. whole affair, which I appreciated just because we, you know, getting a little slap happy doing this for as long as we have been. Mm. Danielle, you've you've covered the industry and you've worked in the industry. Is there anything about this process that you feel like is fundamentally off or needs to be fixed? I am adamant about the fact that if you're going to go up there and tout statistics and numbers, you need to step tout actual statistics and numbers. There's a lot of hyperbole thrown around about we're the number one this, we're the number one that. And it's like, well, there's there's asterisks attached to all of that. And I mean, as you mentioned, it is a sales presentation and I, I get it, but I feel like it's a dog and pony show. And it I, I would like there to be more substance because I also feel like from an advertiser perspective, you do want to know what you're buying. You know, it's more than just the, the shiny, pretty people on the screen. Um, especially now with, with so much competition. So that's, that's one thing that I, it will never change, but I will always hope that it does. Um, I also, and this is just a personal thing, but like the ending on a performance or opening on a performance of somebody who has no attachment to your company is weird to me. You know, <laughs> Warner Media brought out David Diggs, who is a star of Snowpiercer, mm-hmm. and he performed and that worked because he's part of the family. 
He brought up other members of the family on the stage. Mm-hmm. Nash, Nash, Shaquille O'Neal, Daniel yep. Radcliffe. Yeah, sh- yeah. Shaq but... saw Harry Potter. He was very excited exactly. about it. Exactly. <laughs> but it was like this genuine moment that kind of made sense and made you remember, oh, right, they're all part of this one thing. Whereas at the end of the ABC upfront, John Mayer just performed for no reason. And also, and, and to be fair, Poor they man. waited for him to perform because... There was something going on, and, and Kenny Mayne was vamping for a few minutes. And yeah. granted, I enjoyed that, but <laughs> then it, it didn't have a connection, and it felt like we just want you to go off and celebrate. And again, it's a lot of razzle dazzle without substance. Also, I'd like to say when um, Shaq hugged Daniel Radcliffe, it looked like a bear grabbing hold of a puppy. <laughs> <laughs> well, then. Yeah. It's like a version of Kenny Mayne holding the puppy. Exactly. Wow. <laughs> or, or Kenny Mayne holding a puppy. Yeah. I was also going to add that one of the most interesting things for me going into it was how Fox was going to present. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously now being now going out on their own, going out being this solo company. Uh, and they really stressed that um, the startup mentality that they're looking to really yeah. bang into the, the buyers. They were really, you know, keen to stress that they're building again. They're building from the ground up. Um, I don't know necessarily how much you can buy into that, given how much, given that they're not adding that many shows, new shows this year. And the ones that they are adding are, seemingly pretty on brand with the previous Fox content in terms of animation. Uh, they're bringing back their animation domination brand as well. I'm just going to leave this part in here. I'm sorry, Sure, Dan, guys. interrupt my yeah, Fox yeah, flow. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> no, keep going. Uh, Daniel yeah, Holloway, yeah, no, executive um, editor for television. Yeah, yeah but so they're, yeah, they made it very, very clear that they're building from the ground up with this um, metaphor of, you know, we're going to build you know, upon the blocks that we already have, but uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's difficult to see. I think, yeah. I think it's going to take a while to see what they're actually building. Right. Because like you said, so many of the things are returning shows or are so similar to the returning shows that it doesn't truly feel new. Like even Filthy Rich is a version of Empire in a sense. Mm. Um, you know, it's a, it's a rich, Christian soapy family drama. Family, not a musical yeah. family, but at the same time, exactly, Joe. It's It's a, you know soapy family drama with um, conflict between the siblings. Mm, lots of sexy people mm-hmm. doing sexy things. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, the interesting th- thing uh, to me too about Fox when they released their schedule, so Fox ordered 10 new shows for next season up from five the year before, which was very surprising given that, you know, they said, you know, they're going to be focusing more on live event type stuff, you know, like WWE, like sports, like news. And yet, um, you know, you look at their schedule, I believe they've only got three new shows, right, premiering in the fall. So it's just a real question of how, you know, there's, you know, they're going to launch seven new shows like going into the spring then and mid-season. So it's just a question. I'm very curious to see how they ultimately space that out and make that work with their schedule. All right, guys, I look forward to watching All Elite Wrestling with all of you together. uh, (laughs) See, you joke, and it's going to be really fun. It's a sports-centric alternative to mainstream wrestling, and Mm -hmm. uh, you should all read my article at Variety.com. Okay. (laughs) Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with Seth Meyers, host of NBC's Late Night. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. 
The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.